welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 21st, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. In a city where most of us are always rushing, we've all been known to claim there's just not enough time in a day. We humans split our days into 24 hours, our hours into 60 minutes, and our minutes into 60 seconds. But what happens to time after that? Is it just a human construction, or is there something more to it? This week, famed screenwriter Charlie Kaufman and string theorist Brian Greene tackle all things time. Their discussion took place earlier this year at the Brainwave Festival of the Rubin Museum of Art. This discussion is narrated by the Rubens programming producer, Tim McHenry, and his is the first voice you'll hear. I think one of the first questions um, that arose was what, for example, Charlie, when, when you were young, when did you first come across the notion of time? When did time suddenly mean something to you? When did you sense that you might have been late for something? You know, I, I was thinking about this, and interestingly... I don't know how old I was, but I, uh, I was trying to think what would, that, what would that have been for me? When was time an issue? And I, when I was very young, I was, um, I, I was very concerned with dying. I got, I got it in my head that I was going to die. And it was, absolutely panicked me. And um, I, I remember, you know, it kept me up. And I talked to my mother about it. And she, and she said, um, you know, I, I asked her, am I going to die? And she said, yes, you are. Um, and then she left. No, she was... <laughs> Um, no, she said, um, she did say that, but then she said, she said, yes, you are, but not for a very long time. And oddly, that was enormously comforting to me. And I, when I think back on it now, because in, in, the, in the context of this, I don't, I must have had some idea of what a very long time meant, because it, it meant I didn't have to worry about it for what seemed to me to be forever, you know. So that was, I think... That it, it was in the context of worrying about mortality, I think, that I first thought about it. And Brian, what about you? It's strikingly similar, I, I would say, strangely enough. But it was less about my own mortality than about my parents, which I guess is probably a variation on the same thing. Well, it makes you a better person. Than yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to say it, uh, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, but, but when, I was, when I was young, you know, my mother here can, can verify, you know, um, I, I, I was really so afraid in particular of, of my father dying that I kind of wouldn't let him go out of the house without me. If there's any opportunity to go with him, you know, I felt somehow that I needed to be there. So there's definitely that sense of, of finiteness, you know, that, that started, you know, quite young. But I do, I do remember a specific incident where it became a little bit closer, I think, to the focus of time that I have sort of had as a, as a professional physicist, which is, you know, we grew up, I grew up across the street from the planetarium, you know, the Museum of Natural History, the planetarium. And, um, you know, to keep us kids out of, out of our parents' hair on a, on a rainy day, we were always going across to, uh, uh, not sounding too good, uh, you know, go to the <laughs> planetarium, you know, so there you were sort of faced with the whole cosmic history, you know, right across the street from, from where I grew up. 
And, um, and I remember one day, uh, you know, uh, walking to school after having been in the planetarium, really having a tremendous sinking feeling of, wow, um, you know, there's this billions and billion year history, 10 billion year history of which, you know, I'm going to take up this little, little tiny thing. What in the world am I here for? You know, and there's this, you know, urgency of, well, if I can't get the answer to that question, maybe at least I can understand what, what the here is, what the universe is, where did it come from, how does it work, what are the fundamental laws, what will it be like, you know, 100 billion years from now. So there was this moment where it sort of segued from trying to answer the question of purpose to saying, probably unlikely to get an answer since we've been asking it for a long time and there doesn't seem to be an accepted answer to it to at least maybe I can understand the question. I, I, I had this notion that I wanted to build, that I was going to grow up and build a time machine so that I could, that I would, so that I would not die. It would be, that was the plan. And um, when I realized that that wasn't going to happen, I just gave up. <laughs> and, I, it, it might, and it went to comedy. Maybe, we can talk about it, you know, but, you know, the whole notion of time and time travel, of course, you know, occurs all over the place. But there, you know, there's been serious work. Yeah. on this, um, mostly to the conclusion that it's probably, as you intuited, not going to happen, at least in terms of going back in time. Right. But in terms of going to the far future, that's actually something um, which in principle could happen. So it's a way of, you know, if we think about what does mortality mean, it means that you're alive for a window that starts when you're born and you die, and there's no way to fiddle with that window, mm -hmm. and that's what, you know, this, this sense of, you know, panic can come from. Uh, at least according to physics, you probably can't fiddle with this side of it, but you can probably fiddle with that side. Mm -hmm. And in principle, you can visit parts of the temporal spectrum that lie outside this window significantly using physics that's understood, if only we could turn it into the technology that would leverage it maximally, and we can't do that yet. Can you come back? Uh, that's the problem. Can you come back? Um, and, uh, and it seems like the answer is probably no. Right. Although, don't you explore that in Icarus at the Edge of Time? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's true. I mean, this, uh, this story uh, Tim was referring to, you, you know, again, when I was young, I heard, you know, I read in school the myth of Icarus, mm -hmm. which I found very, very troubling because uh, here was this boy who was, in, at least the way I read it, naively maybe, was courageous, willing to go against what his father said, willing to really not stick with the rules mm -hmm. that had been set up. And what is he... Uh, accomplished by that, well, he goes on this journey, but then the price he pays is death, right. right? So you die because you're courageous and creative and willing to push boundaries, and it just seemed all wrong. So uh, I'd always wanted to do a variation on that theme that seemed closer to the way science always felt to me, which is you do all those things, and what happens is you don't, you don't die. You sometimes open up a completely new way of looking at the world, a whole new realm, that may be painful as far as the transition goes. I mean, we opened up the atomic age through this kind of creative thinking, very painful. Mm -hmm. But we needed to make that transition, and we're still making that transition. We've opened up the information age. In many ways, it's a hard step to take for society to move into this new place. But that's what you do. You don't die for it. Rather, you make this step. So in, well, in maybe you do die, though. Maybe, well, that's, maybe that's part of it. You do, maybe you do, and maybe you don't. But you know, well, maybe I, it's worth it. Uh, but, but literally, you're talking you know, metaphorically. I mean, there's, there's a part of the world that dies by virtue of it being left behind and changing. But I think, to me, that's what the excitement of life is, that right. sort of you know, really substantive change from where you were to where you go. And in this story, 
you know, the, this rewriting of the myth, this boy builds a spaceship, uh, he doesn't go near the sun, he flies near a black hole. And the real physics of general relativity is that when you go near a black hole, the rate at which time elapses slows down. This is a, an undisputed fact that comes out of general relativity. The strong gravity, in some sense, is able to pull not just on matter, it pulls on time itself. So time is slowed down. So this boy spends just an hour near the black hole, but when he comes back, it's 10,000 years later. Mm -hmm. So he has done what I mentioned. He's extended the window into a domain that you wouldn't normally think. And it's a painful transition. You know, his father's gone. Everything he knows is gone. But that's, that's what happens when you have a great breakthrough. You change the world. You change the environment from what it was to what it is. And that can be a difficult transition. It's not death, though. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. So my question is then, based on the black hole pulling time in, what is it pulling? Often we think about space and time in a very abstract way. I mean, what, what are these things called space and time? You know, it's hard. You can't, you can't grasp them. You can't smell them. You can't touch them. They don't really have any tactile existence the way, you know, I can feel the arm of my chair. I can feel this cup. And that makes them feel somehow not as real. But what we've learned from Einstein is that space and time really are as real as the cup, as the chair. You just sense them, you feel them in slightly more abstract ways. And what happens near a black hole, at least one way of thinking of it, that's perfectly valid. It's not one of those analogies that we were talking before that are really you know, off point, that give you some rough sense but are off point. The way to think about what happens near a black hole is, why is it that when you cross the edge of a black hole, you can't get away? A way of thinking about it is, imagine you are uh, in a river, in a kayak, and you're rowing along. You know that if the water is rushing toward you at a speed faster than you can row, you'll make no headway. You won't be able to go upstream at all. What happens near the edge of a black hole is space itself is being pulled over the edge of the black hole. It's like a waterfall of space. And if you're trying to run away from the black hole, once you cross the edge, space is going faster than the speed of light. And since you can't travel faster than the speed of light, that's what Einstein taught us, you can't go upstream. You can't make any headway against this infalling space. And that's the way to picture what the black hole is pulling on. At the same time, although harder to understand, because time is somewhat more abstract, because you sort of don't see it in any real way, the way we can sort of see the environment around us, the black hole also pulls on time in a very similar way. So if you had a clock, as the clock gets ever closer to the edge of the black hole, it ticks ever more slowly compared to a clock that you might be holding at a safe distance away. So does that mean that space and time are material? I would say so. In fact, you know, the word fabric that a lot of us use is not a bad word. It's like a thing. It's like it has a texture to it, if you will, like a fabric does. And it but responds. it's not discernible. It's not discernible in the traditional way, but you know, in some sense, right now as I'm sitting here, mm -hmm. and as you're sitting here, you are feeling the fabric of space and time. And what I mean by that is, according to Newton, we're being pulled into our chair because the Earth is pulling on us. Gravity is pulling us down. But Einstein said, what do you mean by that, Newton? What do you mean that gravity is pulling us down? Because I don't actually see the mechanism by which gravity is pulling us down. So he spent 10 years to fill in that mechanism. He found that what's really going on is the Earth is curving space and time in its vicinity. And you and I are trying to slide down an indentation in the facial fabric that the Earth creates. And right now, the reason we feel the chair pushing up on us 
is because our bodies are trying to slide down this indentation in space and time. So we are feeling the very curvature of space and time right now. This is what it feels like. This is what curved space-time feels like. And if you think about it in that language, you begin to ascribe it a reality that the more ethereal notion of space and time without connecting it to gravity might lead you to, to think. Well, Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not clear on what it is that you're sliding down. Uh, I understand that. Uh, <laughs> And, um, and it, is, it is a conceptual leap, because if I were to talk about sliding down sort of a slide in a playground, you'd say, I, I know what that is. You know, I've got the metal, I've got the plastic, my body just goes along it, and I can sort of see it, and therefore I understand what it means to slide down. And what I'm encouraging you to take on board is that what Einstein said is, our very motion through the universe, and we're actually moving right now. I mean, we, we're not moving relative to each other, but we're moving through the universe. That motion is tracing the contours of space and time. I mean, take this stage. If this stage were to be uh, submersed in water, and then the water recedes, the, the wood on the floor would be all warped and curved. Mm -hmm. And if I take a marble and I roll it along this warped floor, it'll go up, it'll go down, it'll trace the contours of the curved, warped wood. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are tracing the contours of the warped space and time. But time is relative. <laughs> But time, is, but time is relative. And meaning, time, and time meaning, is relative. Meaning that yes. it's not now everywhere. That's exactly right. I so mean, if it's not now everywhere, that makes it even more complicated for me to visualize what it is that's curving. Um, um, and, and, and part of what this perspective also asks you to do is to take very seriously your own experiences. Your own experiences are tracing out the contours of space and time, but to recognize that what you experience is not what somebody else necessarily experiences. Because as in the black hole example, you know, if you're here and the black hole is here and I'm hanging out near the edge of the black hole, my time is ticking at a rate that differs from yours. So if you tell me, if you ask me, you know, what's happening right now, my now and your now are different, and therefore we won't even agree on what's happening right now, which means we don't agree on what reality is. Now, if there's nobody there, is there a now? Um, uh, <laughs> I would say yes. Um, the question is, um, what, what can we leverage about that observation? And, and to my mind, what we can leverage about that observation really goes back to an, uh, something that Einstein said. You know, there was um, a letter Einstein received. Uh, one of his friends passed away, and um, uh, you know, he learned about it from, from the widow, and he wrote you know, a note of condolence. And in, in part of the note, he said, you know, to we convince physicists the distinction between past, present, and future is only an illusion, however persistent. And what he meant by that is that if you take the perspective that you might have about what's happening now, that I might have, that that hypothetical person near the edge of a black hole might have, who might not be real, right. let's take all perspectives. And if you bear in mind that no one perspective is any better than any other, even if it's a hypothetical one, there could be somebody there, and therefore you need to take that into account, these different perspectives define their now differently. So then there is no time. Well, there is time, but we don't agree on it. So what I would say is your now differs from my now, differs from the hypothetical person near the black holes now, which means your reality differs from my reality, which differs from their reality. If you take all of these perspectives into account, the real ones and the hypothetical ones, Every moment in time is somebody's now, and therefore is as real to them as this moment. 
this moment is to us. So then, there's no, every, so then there's no now. There's no now. There's no unique now, which right. means that all times are on equal footing. Which so means that the universe exists the whole thing. as a block. That's right. That's right. That would be the picture. And is that, is that what they're thinking these days? <laughs> well, the, the one thing I would say, this is a very classical picture. It doesn't take quantum physics into account, which does complicate things a little bit. But, but, but more or less, um, this is a picture which, which many people at least start from, right. which is that um, past, present, and future are on equal footing. They're all real. They're all out there. I mean, we have no trouble with the notion of all of space being out there. Even if we're not experiencing it, we can picture space near the Andromeda galaxy, near the Whirlpool galaxy in our mind's eye. It's not hard to envision all those positions in space. These ideas suggest that we should think about time in the same way, that all moments in time are out there in much the same way that all positions in space are out there. They're all equally real. This one might feel more real to us, but this one feels as real to me now as that one that I momentarily spoke of a moment ago felt real, right. and they're all there. They're all real. They're all out there, unchanging. So how are we having, how are we having the perception of a changing experience as, as a person? That's right. So why do our brains do this to us? Why do, they, why do our brains organize time in a way that feels like it's flowing, feels like it's absolutely dynamically changing? And I guess the answer to that must be um, when you have this perspective, you, you do well in the jungle. You do well in terms of getting the next meal. Evolution found it useful for us but, to but, think about But there's no reason way. to do well if there's no time. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing to strive for. It's just there. It is, it, is, it is just there, but you know, if you imagine looking at that whole block, then there are some species that do well in that block in the sense that they persist over time and some that don't. Right. And it seems to be the case that those that persist, at least in this window, you know, from, you know, let's just talk about the last five billion years on planet Earth, those that persist, at least one of those that has persisted well, namely us, has done so by virtue of being able to think about something called the future. We are able to look at that bison and look at how it's moving and figure out where it's going to be and thereby shoot the arrow in the correct place to get the next meal. And that's useful. But that bison but fools is already there. And it's already dead. And it's already eaten. And, and so, you know, whatever success we have is, seems to me, based on this notion, is completely predetermined. And therefore, we have no part in it. Um, yes. I mean, you can certainly think about the world is being completely deterministic. Um, and that's not, I think, in any way in conflict with what I'm saying here, because you know, um, what we're talking about is what story does our brain tell us mm -hmm. in order that we carry out, if you want to take this perspective, what we have to. And the story that we tell ourselves is that the future is something that we volitionally can affect. Right. And that way of thinking about things, even if it's wrong, even if it's an illusion, has some kind of survival value because it allows us to do but that. But you can see that there's a paradox. Yes, there, right? oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but there's physics. <laughs> there's physics, which has how the world works. And then there's, I mean, take a step back. I mean, the way I like to think about physics is physicists always tell two kinds of stories. One is the brute force mathematical story of how things are. Mm -hmm. And that's just a bunch of equations that I could write down, and we don't know the full ones yet, but imagine we did. I'd write down these equations on the board. I'd say, there it is. 
Uh -huh. that, and you'd say, oh, but hang on, that doesn't sort of feel like my no. experience. No, I wouldn't say you that. Know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, that would be great. Then I wouldn't I would have to trust go on. You. Um, but, but, but most people look at it and say, okay, you might say that's the rock bottom mathematical story, but tell me the story that links that to my experience. Mm -hmm. And then we start making up all these ideas and all these stories that help us go from the fundamental mathematical underpinnings of evolution in the broadest sense of how the universe evolves to experience. And that involves things like time flowing, and that involves things like you know, making plans, and that involves things like trying to survive. I'd say that doesn't affect the rock bottom mathematical story, but it helps us link between everyday experience and the underlying mathematics. And therefore, even if those two stories might sort of feel in tension with one another, they're different stories. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this story somehow can affect the math. The math is the math. And we sit there and we say, what does it mean? And when we say what it's mean, then we come to these very human words, such as you know, planning, such as time flows, such as you know, survival. But that's just the secondary story that we tell ourselves. But the math is very human, too. The math doesn't... In that it comes from human... Uh... Well, it's, it's, a, it's a human construct. It doesn't exist. It doesn't well, not exist. everybody would agree with that. You know, um, some would certainly but say... But we would have no way of knowing that it, that it doesn't. That's, that's true. Um, um, so we're definitely into a place here where um, it's not like an experiment will tell us whether the math is fundamental or not. But there's definitely a perspective which says that humans don't invent math. Math is literally out there. And some go even further and say that the world is fundamentally a mathematical structure. It is a mathematical structure. And we, again, what we do is we build upon that structure the stories that we tell ourselves. So again, um, I'm on the fence. I have at different times in my career felt differently about yeah. the role of mathematics. But there are some who would certainly say, no, 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 no. It's not human. Math is something that is fundamentally out there, and all we do is reveal it. See, I, don't, I, I think we reveal ourselves. I, I think that I can't, I can't understand how we don't. I mean, we're very, we're very limited creatures. We exist um, with a very specific brain, which, you know, as we, as we said, was designed to serve a certain function, um, planning, you know, survival, different kinds of survival things. And everything that we understand in, in the universe is, is, is seen through that lens. In the same way that, you know, this room doesn't look like anything in reality. It's, it's our interpretation of the, of the light waves. That's right. Um, so so, so I, 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 don't, I don't see how math would be any any different than that. Which is, a, which is an, an argument that one can make, and it's a perspective that I think is perfectly valid, but I would simply throw out that there's another perspective, the one that I was saying that I think has an equal claim at the moment to uh -huh. potentially being right. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, um, when it comes to mathematics, they say, you know, is, is math you know, the fundamental structure? And there was a time when I would say, I don't think so. I took a perspective much like what you're saying. I said, look, I can well imagine that when we discover life on some other planet, perhaps in some other galaxy, that they'll say to us, so uh, how far have you guys gone in understanding it all? And we'd sort of bring out our latest theory and show them the math. They'd say, oh, math, we tried that. <laughs> you know, yeah, it takes you just so far, math. You know, yeah. there's a completely different way of doing it where you know, that's where you get the real insight. And I could imagine that happening. At least there's a time when I could imagine it. Now I'm like, well, I don't know. It's a little hard. To me, it depends in some sense on how you define math. If math is 
a structure that allows you to codify patterns and symmetries and relations, then it's hard for me to imagine there being anything else to understanding the world than having a structure that allows you to talk about patterns and symmetry. That's all that there is. Well, you know what? Like, like this, this thing that I, that I hear um, scientists say and physicists say, which it really intrigues me, is this sort of notion that you know, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful theory. And the idea of beauty seems so human to me. And, and I'm trying to sort of like get, I, I can't because I'm human, but I completely understand, you know, in a, in, a, in a sort of like in a vague way what that means. So this looks, you know, this makes sense, but, but that's just our way of looking at it. My, 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 I had a dog who understood physics, you know, and, um, and I mean, in, in the sense that if you threw a ball and it bounced against a wall, he would anticipate where it would go and be there before it got there. Yeah, yeah he it's understood old... Newtonian physics. Yeah, right, well, <laughs> well that's, that's more than I do, so, you know. Um, but, but, he, but he was yeah. right. Yeah. He, predict, he predicted something, he was right. right. And, but, it, but, it's, but it's within a certain, you know. So, okay, so I, I see us as more sophisticated in terms of our brains than dogs. But I'm never going to be able to, you know, read your book to my dog, you know? And I, I don't think we're that much bigger than a dog. I mean, I think we're, we're very limited right. creatures. And the idea, you know, which, has come, which comes up again and again in, in physics, like, it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's in your book or, or not, but I've been reading, trying so hard. I've been reading this stuff. Um, uh, Hawking said in, like, 1979 that, we will understand everything about physics in 20 years. Was this in your book? No, but he also said it in 89 and in 99. No, 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 he said, years, he said, so, uh, he said I know, careful. but he, he, the great thing was when he, when he was questioned about it after the 20 years, he says the 20 years starts now. Right, and, right, he wasn't, right. and he wasn't joking. Right. And, and, you know, at the end of the 19th century before Einstein, people, they said exactly the same thing, and I think that it's like an onion. I don't think that, I don't think that we, I think we have theories that, help, that, that, we, that, that allow us to really exploit the situation, you know? Right. Um, and, and, and we're ingenious. Some of us are ingenious at it, you know, and, 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 we, and we benefit from it. Others benefit from it. But I don't know that we really understand it, you know? And I, don't, I just don't see how we ever can, given, given how finite we are and how, you know, how big our brain is. Yeah, I mean, I... I uh take that idea quite seriously. In fact, it's funny, the, the dog, I don't know, you know, in the Elegant Universe TV program that we did, there's actually a scene in there where I'm lecturing on general relativity to, an, you know, you don't know who I'm lecturing to, and then the camera pans, and there is a dog uh-huh. that, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, that I'm lecturing to. And, and um, you know, some people, you know, the, the, the point was exactly what you're making, that, you know, we understand certain things. Dogs seem not to fully comprehend everything that we can, and what makes us think that, therefore, we aren't, in some sense, in the position of the dog, the truth being all around us, that we just can't, can't right. understand it. You know, as a footnote, unfortunately, some people misunderstood the scene. They thought that we were trying to say the audience is like the dog. And it's like, <laughs> oh, God, you know, it's like, you know, it's not what we meant. Um, <clears throat> but um, but I, it, it is a real issue. Um, we do have a, a finite intellectual capacity, and maybe it's not up to the challenge of understanding how the world fundamentally works. And that could be. We could one day find that we can't make any further progress. And it may not be that there isn't progress to be made. It just means that this thing isn't strong enough to do it. I can imagine that happening. It hasn't happened yet. 
Every time we've had a difficult problem, we've worked hard, we've done experiments and been able to push further, uh, but we don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see, I don't see the, the knowledge, the, the gaining of knowledge being finite. I think that you know, human beings will continue to push the boundaries. I just don't think that there's but, but, anywhere to get. But I guess I would say I think you need to organize it into chapters in, in the following sense. You know, I think there are certain questions that will draw to a close, that we will answer. It's something, for instance, a big one is, what is matter made of? That's a lot of what drives, at some level, what we do in fundamental physics. And it could be, like an onion, that every time you think you understand the fundamental ingredient, molecules and atoms, you find, oh, there's something else. You know, there's electrons and protons, and then you find they're quarks. And now we're talking about strings, and maybe uh, 50 years from now we'll be talking about something else. Mm -hmm. It could be like an onion, never ending. But on the other hand, it could be that that simply is a question that we'll have an answer one day. We'll hit the bottom, both experimentally and theoretically, and we'll understand the basic ingredients. And that will bring that chapter to a close. I agree that that knowledge will then be used to address other issues. You know, what really is inside a black hole? How did the universe begin? What will it be like 100 billion years? All those interesting questions will be chapters, and I do think that the chapters may go on forever, but I don't think that it's the case that every chapter is, has an abyss. I that, guess my, my, what I'm sort of questioning is, what if, it's, what if that question is not the question? You know, or, or maybe more fundamentally, what if that, what if that there is a question is another um, construct of the human mind, you know, that this is what we do. Yep, we try to solve problems, but that it isn't. It cannot be understood that way. Yeah, you know, I, 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 again, I, I sympathize with that perspective too. I mean, a lot of times, what, the way I think about it is, you know, our minds, through our senses, have a access to what could well be the thinnest little slice through yeah. the reality that, that's really around us. And if we really only have access to this thin little slice and there's all this other stuff that we can't even ask questions about because we don't even have enough knowledge of it to even think of it, mm -hmm. then you're right. I mean, our questioning may, in some sense, be accessing the, the thinnest little part of, of what's truly out there. What gives me hope that that's not the case is, why would it be the case that this thin little slice somehow is so coherent? from the point of view of physics, so self-consistent, so able to address questions and go further and address those questions, I would think that if the thin little slice was the right picture, that there'd be all these kind of anomalies and strange things that just make no sense at all. We do experiments and nothing would make sense because we were looking in such a strange little patch of reality. The fact that that's not the case, that it seems to work, that we are able to make progress, at least gives me hope that maybe we're not looking at a thin little piece. Maybe we are looking at the whole thing. One thing that I, I read that Einstein said, which, which really intrigued me, was that um, the, th um, the theory creates the observation, which I thought, I mean, kind of goes towards a little bit what I'm, yes. I'm thinking. That, you know, well, we're seeing it because that's what we're looking at. That's right. Um, Th there is that. I mean, you know, I think there's a... Uh, incorrect picture that science has painted, which is experimenters go out and they gather data, and then theorists or the experimenters try to figure out what the data is telling us about the world. But the bottom line is, you can't even begin to analyze the data 
until you have a theoretical structure to overlay it so that you have some template within which the data can even be analyzed. Which is the human brain. Which is the human brain yeah. and the theories that that human brain has created. Right. So it's not like we look at the raw, raw, raw data right. and use that to figure out what's going on. We use the data within an existing theoretical template that our brains create to try to make the next step. And what if the template that we put the data within is completely off base, right. then what is it that we're actually doing? So in that sense, the theory is having a vital impact on the observation, in the sense of when you try to figure out what the observation means, you're analyzing within a paradigm. Right. And um, that, that could be the wrong paradigm. So yes, but again, I hasten to add that when you can do a calculation on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. as you know, my colleague you know, Tom Kenosha at Cornell spearheaded over 30 years, he sat there, literally, doing these calculations of the magnetic properties of electrons. Right. And I, he showed me these calculations, amazing, page after page after page. How did he sit here? You know, so at the end, he has a number. You know, two point, blah, blah, blah. It's the magnetic moment of the electron. It's how much magnetism a little spinning electron will exert. They then go and do the measurement. And the experimental measurement and the theoretical calculation agree to 10 decimal places. Right. That gives you hope that what you're doing is really accessing something that's real, that's true, that's out there. Yeah, that's no, not just a product of the human mind. <laughs> and so what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Charlie, I'm writing a little comedy. <laughs> <laughs> There was, there was, there was a, a moment in time in that conversation, um, so fascinating, though, um, where, you, where you touched upon um, the different notions of other nows happening all around us. And, but, Charlie, you've, you've used that as a narrative tool. I mean, in um, New York, you have clocks that belie the time, tell the time when, you, when the audience is thinking they're seeing the same scene you have a clock indicating that this is not the same scene. And, and, and so you, you play with the perception, just like our perception is being played with all the time because our perception of time is seemingly unique to us. So can you tell me a bit about your thinking behind making that film with that view in mind? I mean, I may be wrong. Was that Well, I mean, I think that there's, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of things going on, I hope, in, in the film, and one of them is the, the, the character's sort of um, sense of time um, um, moving, uh, that, the sense that time is moving much more quickly as he gets older. It's kind of, which is, which is something that I, I feel like I've experienced. And um, someone said that the, the reason that that happens is because um, you have such a wealth of memories of when you're younger um, that you live with for such a long time that your childhood, in retrospect anyway, seems much longer, but you know, you're the, that, that changes as you get older. I don't know if that's true, but I, but I, I mean, that was something that interested me, that, that sort of perception of time and also the blending of events where, you know, it's very difficult to, if every morning is the same, you know, if every morning you get up and you make coffee and you read the paper and you go to work um, and the same events transpire, then you know, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what happened on Wednesday or, you know, three weeks ago. And so I wanted to kind of, like, create that, that feeling in, in the thing. But I, I, I do think that, um, and this is something that sort of goes back to, you know, what we're talking about, is that I don't know how to get out of my head 
when it comes to time. And I'm not sure that anybody else can either. You know, you can kind of like speculate about it in a theoretical way, but you can't, you know, your, your, your existence is so in this thing and so much about what you're living is remembering the moment before and anticipating what's going to happen next that it's just this sort of blur. That's why I asked, well, if there's nobody there, what is now? Because I don't know, I don't know how there could be a now. I think now is a, is a function of a brain and that if, if there is no brain, then I think there is no now. It just is whatever that means, you know. Well, isn't um, time the way... <laughs> it, 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 it does. <laughs> Does that jive with your physics? Well, I, mean, I don't mean to grow, but, uh, but I would say that's another, another way of saying what, what we learned from Einstein, which is there's nothing special about the now. Right. I mean, we have looked for a long time in equations of physics to find where is the now in the equations. Where is the, the light that illuminates this moment yeah. and goes dark on the previous moment and hasn't yet illuminated the next moment? Where is that light? Where is that now? And we've not been able to find it, and everything points to it not being there, that well, it's just this thing that, that hungers for that light, but it's not actually there. But you also, I think, I think in your book, you talk about that time, increments of time may actually end. It may not be divisible, complete divisible forever. And then that at a very, very, very small um, level, that it's almost like a grid. Yeah. So if that's the case, then how does it move? How does it get from, if, if there's time, and then no time, and then time, and then no time, how does something get from here to the next piece of time? Again, that's hungering for a flow of time, a motion through time. And what could well be the case is you could have this grid of time yeah. and this grid of space, and it's just this four-dimensional space-time grid that's out there, and at the various grid points, there are events. You were born. I was born. You ate dinner. I had breakfast. Just all these different events. So there's no movement. And there wouldn't they be all, any, there, wouldn't, there would be no flow of time. They would just exist eternally. That block universe that you were describing before. I had this um, when I was when I was a teenager. It was sort of another notion that I had of like of time. Was I, I was walking, and and I had this notion that you know this moment, 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 um, and I imagined myself. In that, in that, in that, in that way of seeing things, and I didn't look like a person anymore, you know, because if I'm here and here and here and here and here, I'm going to look like, a f- like a snake, right? You know, a tu- uh, we a, call it a world tube. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a it's a real concept. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, it's like I, a short I, snake. <laughs> I came up with it on my own. I go. didn't read it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. So what is that? What, then what do you, I mean, so if I'm a world, if I'm a, it's a world tube, but I mean, yeah. I'm a world tube, or I'm a tube in the world, and you're a tube, and um, everyone here is a tube. That's right. And we're all, so we're all coming here, we're all moving um, away from here later, but we're all moving in space on the earth. Um, and what does that look like? Well, I think the vital thing to bear in mind is, however unfamiliar that picture might, might seem, if you focus on yourself at any point in the grid, sort of any moment in time, your brain, we believe, has all of the memories of the past in it. So your brain um, doesn't need the past per se to have flowed to it. It's just your state of the brain at that moment has all these memories 
that make you think at that moment that you've lived this long history. Whether or not you actually did is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I were to create you right now with all of the neural circuitry of your brain, if I somehow, well, you did it, I guess, you know, and you had a film, you know, so let's say, you know, I was able to manipulate your brain, and there's your brain right here. Your brain could have a memory of a past that never happened mm -hmm. as long as I imprint it with the appropriate connections to make it think that it had that past. So at any moment in this tube, any mm -hmm. moment in this, in this spaghetti-like strand that is you through time, at any moment you think you've had a past, you think you've flowed to that moment if your brain is in the right configuration. I mean, the way I like to think about it is, you know, take a DVD of, of Gone with the Wind. And the DVD, of course, is, is a sequence of moments in time. <laughs> There's actually no flow in the DVD. I can hold the DVD in time. You know, but it's got a whole history. But if at any moment I'd simply stop the film, even if I jump to the middle, and, and, and I say to Rhett, Rhett, how's it going? He'll turn to me, and he'll tell me about everything that had happened in the past, even if I didn't play the DVD. Because at that moment in time, his brain is impressed with the things that it's impressed with, regardless of whether time flowed to that moment. Same with you. If I were to simply create you at one moment in time with appropriate memories, you'd think you had a past, whether or not you did. And whether or not you did is somewhat irrelevant because at that moment in the, in the tube, you have a certain sense of a past. Whether or not it was there is irrelevant. But what's built into my tube is a bad memory, right? I mean, a videotape or a DVD is, you know, it's going to precisely show what, what, what happened at every point. Whereas over time, and not over a lot of time, I mean, it goes quick, you know, from, from moment to moment. I mean, I will not. I mean, if, 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 if I were asked to reconstruct the last five minutes of this conversation, I could only do it in a very vague way. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's peculiar to me. I mean, it's just the way the brain seems to work. You know, I mean, I sort of say what we talked about, but I wouldn't be able to say verbatim what we talked about. And uh, um, let alone everything else that's happening within those five minutes, all my other body functions, all everything else that sort of existed in the past. I mean, I wouldn't even be able to tell you about that at all. So, um, so it's very confusing to me. I, I guess I get back to the sort of notion of if it all exists, which is, which is not a physics question, but it is a kind of metaphysical question, is if it all exists and it's, and it's an illusion, why? But why is it an illusion if it all exists? Well, if it's an illusion that the I have a history, if, the I, if, an illusion. if the illusion that I have a history or illusion that I have to do this to survive, if it's all built, if there is no now, so therefore what's in the future already exists in some place, then why is any of it here? You know, what, it, what is it? Uh, Brian? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, that um, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> You know, was, you know, Leibniz asked it, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, and um, it certainly, I can imagine a universe that, that had nothing. I don't mean sort of empty space. I mean right. literally no space and no time. And um, it would have been a much simpler state of affairs if there was no universe. Um, and since simplicity has always been a guide, you wonder why did this messy universe come into being at all? Right. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know, no one does, the answer to a question like that. There are vague ideas. I mean, people um, have speculated that, at least in quantum physics, one of the things we've learned is you can have a notion of nothing, but quantum physics doesn't 
allow nothing to be as quiescent as you might think. Nothing seems like nothing should happen. Right. But in quantum physics, <coughs> if quantum physics sort of existed, even without the universe, I don't know what that really means, but if the laws existed without the universe, they may have coaxed nothing into what's known as a quantum fluctuation, where it momentarily gathers some energy that's positive, some energy that's negative, so it still has total zero, and the positive energy evolves into what we see, and the negative energy perhaps evolves into something else, the universe evolving from a quantum fluctuation from nothing. And is that, is that sort of a Big Bang kind of well, it's, moment? Well, it, it, it's even before the Big Bang. So when we talk about the Big Bang as being the origin of the universe, that's, that's a misuse of language. Our theories allow us to describe the universe from a split second after a beginning. But the math does not allow us to talk about the beginning. The math implodes. It breaks down right now. So we don't know what happened at the beginning. This is a thought about what might have happened in the beginning. But the, but the, but the Big Bang, in theory, is the beginning of the universe and the beginning of time. Uh, it's the beginning of our universe. Uh -huh. um, a lot of recent work has suggested that ours may not be the only universe. It might be. But right. people are definitely spending a lot of time thinking about multiverse theories, where our universe is one universe, one bubble, if you will, in sort of a big cosmic bubble bath that's filled with other universes, each of which can have its own conception of time or not, each of which could have had its own beginning. And the whole structure, conceivably, will go on forever, where there are all these universes populating this vast cosmic arena, and ours just being one. So that's not the same as the theory that every time a choice is made, another universe is formed. Uh, the, that, that's the many universe interpretation of quantum mechanics. And one of the interesting things is, uh, that's not what I had in mind. Right. Um, that's another flavor. It's another variant of this idea. In fact, uh, I've counted, in terms of serious ways, there are nine variations on the theme of multiverses, mm -hmm. nine roots that you can take in physics that lead you to the idea of our universe being one of many. And they're all somewhat different in nature and in character. And one thing that's really striking is that in these multiverse theories, some of them, uh, it can be that the other universes don't have a concept of time, at least no concept of time that's familiar to the one that we experience here. So all our struggle to figure out what time is um, might be a struggle that only even makes sense within a particular small little piece of this grand cosmic arena. If there is no time, then there's nothing for the thing that we're in to have been, there's no time for the thing to have been created, right? Right, so you even run into a vocabulary problem. Yeah. You know, if there is no time, how do you talk about a beginning? How do you talk about an origin? And um, these are unresolved issues. I mean, again, I should say, and perhaps it's worth emphasizing, since we've been talking about time for you know, a while here. Uh, um, you know, um, it may well be that time is not even a fundamental concept in, in physics itself. There are many of us who suspect that time is a derivative notion, an emergent idea. I mean, the example that I like to use is temperature. Everyone knows what it means for something to be hot or cold. It's a macroscopic everyday experience that we can all wrap our minds around very simply. Modern physics gave us a deeper understanding of temperature. It said when something's hot, it means the constituents, the molecules are moving fast, and when something is cold, the molecules are moving slower. Right. But temperature itself is then a derived secondary emergent idea that is the average speed of the fundamental entities. Right. Ta time may be similar. Time may be like temperature in the sense that it's an emergent secondary idea that is based upon some more fundamental notion. There may be sort of atoms of time, much like there are atoms that give rise to this concept of temperature. 
And when you focus in on a single atom, there's no sense of temperature associated with it. Temperature is only when you have an aggregate, a lot of them moving. Maybe when you look at the atoms of time, there's no familiar time associated with it. It hasn't yet gotten together with all its compatriots to flesh out that emergent notion of time. So how do you talk about it's like motion? Motion is how its position changes in time. But if there's no time, how do you even talk about its motion? So it's very hard. We don't even really have the language yet to describe it. But I'd say that I'd say many, many physicists think there will come a moment when we recognize that our equations should not have time in them from the get-go. Time is something that only happens now and then in certain environments. It's, but isn't it true that time is not in most physics equations, that they're symmetrical in terms of time? Uh, but time is, yes. So you're saying that future and past are on equal footing, yeah. but time is definitely in the equations. Open any textbook, look at fundamental equations, and except for one that we could talk about, uh, there's a T. There's a time variable. There is direction, a notion of, but direction. Not direction, but there is a notion of time in it. Right. Now, you're right. A separate question is, does the equation distinguish future from past? Right. And it doesn't. And that's a separate puzzle, one that we haven't sort of spoken about yet, a very deep one. What gives time an arrow? Why is it that glasses break, but they don't unbreak when the laws do allow glasses to unbreak? Why is the breaking of a glass so familiar and the unbreaking so unfamiliar? Separate, interesting question. But that doesn't mean time's not in the equation. It's right, there. Right. It's there in the equation. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our awesome event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support the Science in the City program today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.